give you thanks for your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness to us. We ask you to continue to dwell in our midst today as we worship you, as we hear your word, as we consider your work in our midst and your calling upon our life and our parish. Lord, pour out your spirit. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. What in the world? Why do things look so different today? Tell me some of the things you noticed. I wonder how much you, you notice that's different. Just, just call things up. The what? The bishop's picture was missing downstairs. I don't have my album. You don't have your album. Brian don't have his on. Your collar. No candles. I'm casual. What else? No candles. No candles on the altar. What else? No cross. No procession. No altar lens. No colors. No colors on the altar. Nobody of Jesus. No crucifix. Uh, what else? What about the flow of the service? Oh, here we are at the sermon. What have we not done that we usually do? Readings. Prayers. The prayers come after the sermon. But yeah. Okay, so a lot of things are different. What? There's no book of common prayer in the in the sanctuary in the pews. So uh, let me just ask you to think through some questions. Why why do we use a book of common prayer? Why do we have those books in the pews, and why do we follow that form for our Sunday morning worship time? Why do we usually process in at the beginning of the service? Carrying a cross, on that cross there's a body of Christ. Why do some of us dress up and wear long white robes? Why do we use different colors at different times of the year? Why are there always candles on the altar and we light them at the beginning of service and put them out at the end? Why do our deacons and priests wear clerical collars? Why do we use wine for communion instead of grape juice? Why do some of us make the sign of the cross? What is it with all the bowing like when the processional cross passes your row, some of you bow, while others reverence the altar and bow at the name of Jesus? Why do we do all those things? Those are rhetorical questions, but I want you to think about it. Um, yesterday, as I was trying to put together exactly what I wanted to talk about today, I went over to our built-in bookcase and began to peruse our books, not necessarily looking for any particular book, but just seeing what I could find that was related specifically to, uh, to worship and forms of worship and liturgy and so forth. 
And uh, while I was doing that, this paperback caught my eye that I forgot I had purchased. I do that often. I'll buy a book and intend to read it and end up just putting it on the shelf. <clears throat> so I'm not the only one. Uh, but this book is entitled So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore. And I recognized it. I remembered I bought it because I didn't like the author's. Have you ever bought a book because you didn't like it? <laughs> I didn't like what I understood they were standing for and saying. But I had an idea that I didn't fully understand it because I have some friends who adore these authors, so I thought I would check it out. I wanted to understand it, but I just never got around to it. So I, I, I'm not recommending the book because I've only skimmed a couple of chapters, but it's an interesting book. It's a book of hypothetical, hypothetical or fictional story of, of this assistant pastor who is having a crisis of faith and he starts encountering sporadically um, this guy who the way he talks and acts makes this assistant pastor think this is John. This is the John, John from the Apostles. And so uh, it's about, I think it's about renewing your spiritual walk and renewing the church. And I'll, I may share more from it later. But the one thing that I gleaned from it last night was we, we do understand that as it says in Acts 7.48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. That was Stephen preaching to the Pharisees and Sadducees, I guess. Anyway, they were Jewish and they ended up stoning him. He, he, his sermon offended them so much that they killed him. And we know Paul was there and condoned it. But he said, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. We know that is true. This, this building is not the dwelling of God. We gather here to worship Him. We want to pay honor to it as a sacred space used for that purpose. But it's not the place where God dwells, right? <clears throat> One more thought that I gleaned from that book, and uh, early on in these two guys' relationship, the um, mysterious uh, spiritual guy asked the struggling assistant pastor, he said, what was the last thought you had last Sunday before you got out of your car at the church? And the pastor made something up. And he said, no, I mean, what was the last thought you had? And the pastor stopped and thought about it. And he said, he said, I'll be glad when this is over and I can get back home. There's been 
a few times in my life when that was true. That's never been true here at this church. I have never personally dreaded coming to church. There were a few Sundays that it was a bit of a struggle, to be honest, but I've never dreaded it and I never thought, or if I do, I don't remember it. I don't want that to be true for myself or any of you or anybody else. I don't want to be involved in it. Life is too short. I don't want to be a part of something that's just out of duty or guilt or whatever. And I think a lot of what this book is trying to expose is the amount of manipulation and guilt <clears throat> that takes place within a lot of organizations, especially churches. So anyway, we have come here today to worship God. We understand that. And we would all agree, I believe, that our desire is to worship God in spirit and truth. That's our goal. That's our desire. So, does the form of our worship matter? What does it matter? I mean, Sandra and I are from a Pentecostal background, and we grew up uh, back in the 60s in churches that were prone to have an outburst of a lot of emotion during the service. Crying, wailing, shouting, laughing, dancing, I don't mean like big band dancing. I mean like shaking under the power of the Holy Ghost, fits of dancing. So, <coughs> is that form of worship um, that is? within the stream of the church that is one of the forms of worship that has been present, evolved, is still going on in quite a few churches I'm sure. Uh, there's also within the expression of Christianity, especially evangelical churches, churches that have a huge emphasis on Russian rationalism and intellectualism. It's all about what you think. Uh, the whole purpose of the Sunday gathering, the primary purpose is for uh, the preacher to deliver a sermon, which is, a, is the goal of the, of the sermon, is to either evangelize or to impart new knowledge that will achieve some goal, have some effect, some transformation in your life. So you have that form of worship that's primarily focusing on uh, education. You have some that's almost solely focused on evangelism. Every sermon ends with an altar call for somebody to give their life to Jesus. You have some that... Uh, Again, strive uh, a heavy emphasis on education within the church through the Sunday school, through the youth group, through 
the, the Sunday sermons, the Sunday night sermons, the Wednesday night sermons. It's all about it, trying to impart knowledge. There are other churches that focus almost exclusively on uh, helping you be a better you, empowering your life, be all you can be. Uh, some charismatic churches fall into that category, and other non-charismatic churches do. So I think as you think about the spectrum, that's just a sampling of what's out there. We have to come to the conclusion that yes, our former worship does matter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course, we recognize that we're not here today because of anything we've done. We're not here today necessarily because of of what we can do, but we're here today because of what he's done. We're here today because of grace. So is any of this necessary? Is it important? <clears throat> Does it really matter or is it kind of like some people prefer Fords and some Toyotas? You just pick your flavor and that's fine. Well, I think the important question is for us to consider how can we best participate in Christ-centered worship? How can we best participate in Christ-centered worship? So, we listed uh, some of the obvious things that are missing that are different today than our norm. And here is a, a list that I've made a few weeks ago of... Uh, the first list... On, is the the worship service itself the form of the service the ringing of the church bell having the procession or using incense on occasion the opening acclamation and response some of us using the sign of the cross the call out for purity that I pray every Sunday after the opening acclamation the confession of sin the absolution by the priest the gloria a time of worship and song, praying of a collet, the readings from the Old Testament, a psalm, a response to the psalm, the glory of Patri, a New Testament reading, and the gospel reading, then the sermon, after the sermon, the Nicene Creed, the prayers of the people, the passing of the peace. At the Eucharist, we'll bring our offering, and then the Eucharist is broken down into all the different parts of the Eucharist, which ending with the Lord's Prayer, the breaking of the bread, the actual participation or receiving of the body and blood of Christ, post-communion prayer, thanksgiving, the benediction or the blessing that I pronounce at the end of the service, then the recessional and the dismissal that the deacon gives us. So that's that's the uh, the Anglican form of worship that we follow is pretty much out of the Book of Common Prayer, with our own flavor to it. Now, on the right side of the page is just a list of stuff or what we wear or stuff we do, and you can read that over and think about it, but. I want you to, over the next few days, review this list and and pick 10 or 12 things 
that are non or the most important or the most non-negotiable for you. And um, if you want to communicate that to me, that's fine. If you don't, just do it for your own benefit. So as you think about what we're not doing today, um, one of the reasons I decided to have this experiment uh, was hopefully that it would help you have a, a higher appreciation to cherish it more, to realize the gifts that we do have and to make sure we're doing everything we can, you know, to receive all that can be received by this form and style of worship. And I ask you to think about why are you here today? What drew you to this liturgical yet charismatic form of worship that we have? I also want you to think about and what I hope to use the next few Sundays is to review and, and clarify and to help you recall why we do what we do, the origin of some of these things and the purpose for some of these things, the symbols and the prayers and the rituals. Help you think about what does it really mean to you? And if, if a visitor comes and asks those questions that I asked in the beginning of the service, uh, for the most part, those are pretty basic questions that we should have a pretty clear answer on why we do those things. You know, why do we use the Book of Common Prayer and use that form for the Eucharist service on Sunday morning? <clears throat> you know, why is there a procession? Why do we wear abs? We're going we're gonna to answer all those questions in the Sundays to come. If you're can't recall immediately the answer to all of them. Hopefully you'll be refreshed by the end of Lent. One of the books I picked up, or actually it's on my Kindle, is a book called Evangelical is Not Enough by Thomas Howard. And he talks about his journey from a strictly uh, non-liturgical evangelical upbringing and, and church home into the liturgical stream he became Anglican, and then if uh, he either became Roman Catholic or Orthodox. I think it was Roman Catholic uh, after he wrote this book. Uh, but he said, I had been accustomed to hearing people speak of the blessings they received from a given service. One spoke of what they had gotten out of such and such a sermon or meeting. If things were especially impressive, you might even hear the phrase, a beautiful worship experience. Returning tourists sometimes told of being in Westminster Abbey or the King's College Chapel at Cambridge and finding themselves overwhelmed by the beauty of the music, the solemnity of the liturgy, and the general atmosphere of reverence and dignity. It had been a beautiful worship experience for them. He goes on to say, the phrase worship experience missed the point. The phrase worship experience missed the point. Worship in the ancient tradition was not thought of as an experience at all. It was an act. Or if there was an experience, that part of it was a mere corollary to the main point. The people came together to make an act of worship. They came to do something, not to get something. 
they had not come to a meeting. A little bit later he said, We in the congregation are not auditors, not spectators, not recipients. We had come to this place to offer something to God, namely the sacrifice of praise. I came to realize that there was more than a mere difference in phraseology between this and what I had always thought of as worship. There was a difference in vision. So that was from the book Evangelical is Not Enough by Thomas Howard. <clears throat> Robert Weber, who is probably had more influence than any other single man in the whole involvement of the um, convergence movement, <laughs> what we are, part of the convergence movement, which is a movement that has attempted to look at the history of this church, identify the primary streams of church history, and seek to take advantage of and incorporate the best, the good, the, the, the core, the most fundamental important parts of each stream, that being the the liturgical Catholic stream, the evangelical stream, which was born out of the Reformation, and the Pentecostal charismatic stream. Three different streams come together into one river. Well, he, he coined, I don't know if he coined the phrase, but he, he was very influential. He was a professor at Wheaton College, and uh, his journey, he went from being a Baptist uh, member, pastor, to becoming a um, Anglican, Episcopal. He was part of the Episcopal Church. Uh, I think he passed away before they got too much into wherever they are now. But <clears throat> in his book, um, Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail, Why Evangelicals Are Attracted to the Liturgical Church, he said... Uh, my curiosity about worship was aroused. I turned to sources describing the early Christian worship of the fathers of the church. So he began to study the early church fathers and their writings. For these early Christians, worship must have been an event of great joy and festivity. They were, first of all, number one, they were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and feasting in anticipation of his return. Why do we worship? We worship as a sacrifice of praise in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus and in anticipation of his return. That's one thing. And he goes on, in the context of a meal, they read scripture, related stories about Jesus, interpreted him and his work on the cross in the light of Old Testament prophecy. So they, uh, they formed their theology together, as Jeremy expressed last Sunday. They did it corporately, not uh, as lone rangers, not as a single uh, solitary believer searching the scriptures alone in isolation. Number three, they urged fellow Christians to live lives that were exemplary. So the, their life together was designed and, and 
intended to produce transformation, to produce change in their in their day-to-day -day lives. And they, they brought food to be distributed to the widows and poor in the community. So it wasn't just about theology and worship. It was about taking care of those that are in need. It was about being the hands and feet of Jesus to those that are the least, the last, and lost, and the lonely. They spent time in prayer for their needs, for the needs of others, and gave thanks to God for his provision. After they had prayed, they took bread and wine, the symbols Christ had given of his broken body and his shed blood, and as Jesus taught, they remembered him through the celebration of the Eucharist. So those are the things that Robert Weber identified through his study of the early church fathers of what the worship was like in the beginning days of the church as, as the New Testament was being written and then for the next two or three centuries as the canon of scripture was being consolidated and confirmed and uh, the structure of the church evolved and the forms of worship began to be created. So here we are, first Sunday of Lent, 2019, um, April 4th, 1999 was the first public Sunday service for this parish. Um, Brian and Sandra and I were there, and it was in the back of Greg's store over on Main Street. And uh, so this coming, the first Sunday in April, I think it is April 4th, um, 7th, April 7th, is, it must be the second, no, that'd be the first Sunday, uh, will be their 20th anniversary as a parish, how about that, it's hard to believe. <clears throat> but uh, the liturgy that was established uh, during the literate, during the duration of Greg's time as our priest has only undergone some very minor modification in the years since. So there you go. Well, a lot of the reasons we have all that we do, the forms that we use, the flow of the service, uh, is because that's how we started out doing it under the Greg under Greg's leadership and with the bishop's oversight. Now. <clears throat> part of the reason we're having this experiment today is for several years uh, Bishop Chuck has repeatedly encouraged myself and other rectors in this diocese uh, to consider reducing or simplifying or making some tweaks to the liturgy for the purpose of making it uh, less of an adjustment for newcomers who might show up from a more traditional Protestant background to adjust to. And I've listened to him all these years and decided uh, personally, personally I enjoy liturgy. If it was strictly up to me, we would make some changes that would increase our level of liturgical flavor becoming even more Anglo-Catholic or Orthodox or ever what term you might apply to it. And that 
may still happen. We're we're in a we're in a process of discernment. Um, but I have come to question, especially since uh, those two nights when the bishop came up here and talked back in February, is when I started wondering if maybe he was right. <laughs> maybe the bishop is, knows what he's talking about. So I'm open, and uh, what I intend to do is to use the next four Sundays of Lent, we're going to begin to bring back what's missing today, uh, teaching about it, explaining it, uh, enjoying it, and by, um, by the April 7th, which is the last Sunday before Palm Sunday, uh, will be the, the end of that transition. And so Palm Sunday, we will be back to our full liturgy to the extent that we restore it. So again, I don't have any, I don't have anything on that list personally that I'd plan to change, but I'm open to see if, is there anything that we need to consider doing that might make it more uh, comfortable or enjoyable for newcomers who don't have a liturgical background. That's the whole question of the day. So, now you know. Um, the readings that we didn't have today were all good ones. Uh, I did read them. And uh, the New Testament reading, I'm going to read part of it. It may be all of it. It's Romans 10, 6 to 13. From the ESV it says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart he will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or he will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word, of, the word, of, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's one of the uh, foundational scriptures for the evangelical uh, tradition for the belief in a personal confession of faith and uh, of being born again, of a declaration of personal faith. Not all traditions emphasize that or even embrace that as a valid concept. They don't interpret that scripture in the same way that we do as evangelicals. But uh, that is uh, uh, who we are, and that's not going to change. And uh, as the bishop says, he's, he's still not opposed to using the four spiritual laws track to lead somebody to the Lord. So... <clears throat> um, it also emphasizes that there's a 
there's some who believe that the, the New Testament was not written to individuals. Uh, that it all the letters were written to groups, and that we as Westerners, as Americans, have overemphasized the personal aspect of when we read Scripture, and it says "you," we think it's meant for me personally, where the "you" was meant for the entire church, and should never be applied individually to people. I think that's a bit of a stretch, uh, but it does point out. An interesting aspect to possibly some of the lack of unity that we have in our midst is everybody's interpreting everything personally for their own, the way they see it. But uh, obviously, this passage and definitely says that everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Christ raised you from the dead, you will be saved. And that's the process of salvation. The, new t- the uh, <clears throat> gospel reading is the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness after his baptism. And uh, as you remember, there was three temptations the devil presented to Christ in the desert. The first one was because Christ was hungry, he had fasted for 40 days and nights and hadn't ate anything. Uh, The devil said, turn these stones into bread. And I, I see that as the temptation that's common to all men or the, the basics of life for all men is survival is being able to eat. And in our modern culture, we most of us don't spend a whole lot of time wondering if we're going to get to eat today. We may wonder what we're going to eat, but we have a vast selection and choices. It's not, are we going to eat or not? Um, but for many people in the world, even today, that's not the case. They're, they wake up every day hungry, and they don't know if they're going to get to eat anything that day or not. And so this, this temptation that Satan presented to Christ was representative of the basic needs that we have uh, physically as a, being a human being and the temptation that we have to try to uh, satisfy all of those needs through our own power through, and to be in control ourselves, and to build up uh, excessive surpluses so that we can be assured we won't be without. With the second temptation, he took him up to a high place and showed him the kingdoms of the world and asked him to bow down and worship him. Well, I see that as being... Uh, when we move beyond the basic necessities of life to all the rest of this earthly life, uh, the desires that we have as men and women, the desires to be respected, the desires to be admired, the desires to be uh, served, to be to get our way, uh, it goes on and on. Uh, the desires for... Um, admiration uh, all of these things can become idols uh, 
But again, the, Satan, I mean, the, again, as Satan tempted Christ with that, his response was, you should worship the Lord only, and him only should you serve. And I think the third temptation revolves around trusting God, where he took him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said, cast yourself down. And uh, Satan misquoted scripture, trying to support his challenge. Uh, and Jesus said, don't live by the bread of the Lord only, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So <clears throat> we have here in our midst, in this tradition, we have the gift of, of being evangelical, of, of understanding the... the uh, positive things that came out of Martin Luther and the Reformation that that clarified some horrible wrongs that had evolved in that time in that region of the church. So we're, we need to to understand and cherish these gifts and uh, to to appreciate an emphasis on biblical truth to appreciate the, the freedom that we have as charismatics that at any point in time we can dispense with the program that we have for, at the time and, and be led by the Spirit and attend to whatever individual or corporate needs might be present that day. Uh, and we have the gift of the riverbanks, the liturgy that keep the the, the fireplace that keeps the fire inside a structure so it doesn't become wildfire, it doesn't become out of control and destructive. We have all these gifts that we should cherish and appreciate it. I touched briefly on the idea of, of corporate versus individual spirituality and as we're primarily focusing on our corporate worship the time that we come together I wanted to just no I'm not I'm not, I'm not even going to share that that's, a, that's another rabbit trail that I don't want to go down forget that we'll, uh, we might come back to that in another sermon someday but um, Yeah, the what I want you to remember, remember today from the sermon, not from all of the change, is it's not it's what we do and what we're here for is not based on our own efforts, but it's because of what God has done. We're here in response to His grace and His mercy. We're not here to appease Him. We're not here to... Uh, collect uh, points and to try to win more uh, admiration or love from God the Father uh, we're, we're here because of His unconditional love and His grace and His mercy and the, his act of salvation that he completed on the cross. Remember that we came to this place not to get something, but to offer something to God. 
we came to, to give a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Remember that the presence of God doesn't dwell in this building. The, the, we are the temple of God, 2 Corinthians 6.16. For we are the temple of the living God. Remember not to forget over and over in uh, the stories of, of the scriptures about the Eucharist, it talks about remembering. And we're to never forget the price that Christ paid on the cross for our salvation and then his promise to never leave us or forsake us. And remember that God really does have your best interests in mind. That you can trust him. That you don't have to second guess him. You don't have to try to uh, uh, convince him that you're worthy. Uh, just expect him to always have and provide what is what is most important and what is best for you. My hope for this parish is that we cherish the gifts that God has given to us. That the time we're together would challenge us and change us to become more like Christ. To come to know God better. And we would depart from this place to serve God and each other. Proclaiming the good news by our actions and our words. That we'll be looking each day for this adventure that we're on. Uh, for each day to be an adventure. Acknowledging that, that many days, if not most days, seem pretty uneventful and ordinary, but always expecting more. Amen.